when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Rishi Sunak delivered a mini budget this week in all but name, but his measures to protect Britons from the cost of living crisis were criticized for not going anywhere near far enough. The invasion of Ukraine presents a risk to our recovery, as it does to countries around the world. We came into this crisis with our economy growing faster than expected, with the UK having the highest growth rate in the G7 last year. But the OBR has said specifically, there is unusually high uncertainty around the outlook. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's going on in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this specially extended episode, we'll be delving into the spring statement, the Chancellor's tax cuts, projections for growth, the state of the public finances, inflation, and more economic turbulence ahead. We'll be looking at the real terms impact for voters, the political choices made, and whether Sunak will have to do more. Political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Charles are on hand for their expert analysis. And then later, we'll be gathering reaction to the spring statement from both sides of the British economy. The CBI's Tony Danker and Francis O'Grady from the TUC will give us their take on Sunak's statement and discuss what can be done to improve the UK's low growth and productivity, a perennial challenge that's only becoming more problematic. Thank you all for joining the pod. Rishi Sunak did not want to deliver such a consequential fiscal event. The Treasury's natural disposition when faced with such uncertainty is to wait and see. But the war in Ukraine has further impacted the global economic outlook, particularly inflation. And the Chancellor peppered his common statement with warnings that worse economic times may lie ahead. But as the cost of petrol rises, along with food and all manner of goods, the Chancellor was forced into action, possibly by number 10 Downing Street, who are deeply concerned about the political implications of inflation. But instead of pumping extra money to help those on the lowest or no incomes, Rishi Sunak went for tax cuts. These are the three key measures he announced at the dispatch box. For the first time in 16 years, the basic rate of income tax will be cut from 20 to 19 pence in the pound. Today, I can announce for only the second time in 20 years, fuel duty will be cut. Not by one, not even by two, but by five pence per litre. Our current plan is to increase the next threshold this year by 300 pounds. But I'm not going to do that, Mr Speaker. I'm going to increase it by the full £3,000. Well, Chris Charles, welcome back to the podcast. What was Rishi Sunak trying to achieve with this spring statement, and was he successful? I think he was trying to achieve a number of things. First of all, he wanted to say, as he said, he wanted to stand by people 
at a time where inflation is going to rise somewhere close to 9% by the end of the year, energy bills going up by 54% next month. So that was the first thing. The second thing, he wants to get Garland a reputation as a tax cutter, particularly for members of his own party. He wants to do this while also being seen as being prudent with the public finances and steering a stable economy. So there's quite a lot of objectives there. And was he successful? No, he wasn't successful, I think, is the, is the short answer. He wasn't seen to have done enough to help people out because, in the end, taxes are going to go up more than he cut them back. So people are going to be paying more in tax and people are going to be facing the worst living standards drop in the next financial years since records began, so back to the 1950s, back to the time when they were still rationing around. Uh, so he was not successful in doing a lot. Is he seen as the tax cutter? Well, taxes as a share of national income are going up to the highest level since the late 1940s and higher than was planned in October. So it's very hard to say you're a tax cutter. Has he stabilised the public finances? Yes, he has. They're in a better shape than before. And that all comes down to inflation. Inflation is bizarrely quite good for the public finances because it brings tax revenues in, but it's very bad for people and it's bad for public services because they get the same amount of money and have to do and it doesn't go as far. Well, George Parker, that's quite a bleak picture Chris just painted there and I think there's been some frustration as we record this on Friday morning, a couple of days out from the spring statement that he's announced, you know, what he would describe and the Treasury were keen to say is almost £10 billion of tax cuts. But as Chris said, the tax burden is still going to be its highest. It's been in seven decades. So when you look at all that, it's not really a tax cutting budget. It didn't do a lot to help people on the lowest incomes and it feels like Rishi Sunak sort of got trapped between trying to keep both sides happy and ended up pleasing no one. Yeah, there's some frustration in the Treasury that COVID has distorted everything and the prism through which all these fiscal events are seen. You know, we spend 400 billion quid, suddenly every fiscal event we're expected to be handing out loads of money. But I think as Chris described very well there, he was caught between two stools. Big headline thing that we've been writing about this week is the fact that he's banked a lot of the better fiscal news that they've had over the last year, sort of 50 billion pound windfall, and put that aside for what will inevitably be an even bigger or much bigger rescue package, I suspect, in in the autumn. But also because, as he himself admitted, the the public finances are in a very precarious state and things could get much worse. So I think that's probably sensible. But the problem he had from a presentational point of view was he sounded almost triumphant in announcing these, in inverted commas, big tax cuts, including the 1p income tax cut that he's penciled in for 2024. But in the end, it didn't satisfy anyone because everyone could look at the figures. They could see that the underlying tax burden was going up. And there was another very significant problem for Rishi Sunak in terms of the presentation of this spring statement, which we may come on to, which is he did nothing at all for people at the very bottom, the people who are not in work, people who don't have a car, so don't benefit from fuel duty cuts and aren't paying national insurance and income tax. And when you put the Chancellor in a radio studio next to someone, for example, who's a carer, and you say to him, what are you doing for this person? And he hasn't got an answer. That's a very difficult position to be in. Now, let's take each of the measures in turn, Chris, and start with fuel duty. We had Rupert Harrison on the podcast last week, who was a former senior advisor at the Treasury, and he said that a 5B cut in fuel duty would be big. And that costs, I think, about £2.3 billion. That 
kicked in at 6pm on Wednesday. And again, the Treasury urged that to be passed on to the forecourt. And I imagine most supermarkets and petrol stations will want to do that. Do you think that was a wise use of money? And will people actually feel that difference? I mean, I think there's two ways of looking at it. So there's the classic economist's way of looking at it. And it's not a wise thing to do, because even if fuel prices go up, you want actually people to be paying the increased cost because that will encourage them to use their cars less. But that's completely drowned out by the politics. And I think I don't take the strict economist line here. I think it's entirely reasonable that politicians want to protect drivers. People, A lot of people have to use their cars at a time when petrol prices have gone up an extraordinary amount. I mean, it doesn't anyway offset the full rise in petrol prices, which have gone up by about 30p or so uh, a litre this year. But it does do something. The difficulty for the Treasury is, will you ever be able to claw it back? Will you ever put it back to the level it was at? And the answer will depend, I think, entirely on what where global oil prices are this time next year. Because George, he made a big deal of the fact this is going to be kept in place until March next year. And many other European countries who've cut their fuel duty have done so that are only for a much shorter period. But I think, as Chris says, the outlook set by the OBR doesn't suggest the economy is going to be in a much happier place by early 2023. So this is part of the reason why the Treasury has frozen fuel duty for 12 years, because politically, it's really difficult to rise it. And now they've cut it. It feels to me almost impossible. It's going to be going back up again. Yes, I mean, Rishi Sunak's got recent unhappy experiences of temporary schemes during the COVID period, which are very difficult to unwind and for taxes to go back up. So he'll be very sceptical about that. In the run-up to the spring statement, he was having meetings with Tory MPs where he said, look, I can cut fuel duty, but big moves in the wholesale market of oil will knock them out immediately. You won't be able to see them. So I think he was sceptical about the idea, but as Chris says, the politics were essential. And Boris Johnson basically said, you've got to do this on fuel duty. Fuel duty is one of those totemic things which always appears on the front page of the red tops the next morning. So I don't think there was any choice he had to do that. Now, the second big measure, Chris, was increasing the national insurance thresholds by £3,000. That's been broadly welcomed, I think, as a good move to try and help those people on the lowest incomes in society. And that's coming in in July. Yes, yeah, so that's coming in. They, they needed, I think, a bit of extra time just to get the systems in place. I think if they could have done it in April, they would have done. So that, not to, to make a big point of that. It does. It very much helps people on middle to lower income. In fact, it takes away much of the increase in the personal aspect of the national insurance rise, not the employer aspect. So employers will pay more for those jobs, and they might well seek to limit pay rises in future. So it all gets paid by people in the end. But it does limit the increase. Interestingly, the health and social care levy or the national insurance rise was expected now to raise a huge amount more, about £20 billion, rather than the 12 or 14 that it was expected back in September when it was first announced. It's not actually a smaller tax increase, it's just a tax increase raises about the same amount as it always was going to raise, but it's been able to give a little bit back. And it's this sort of mind-boggling thing, George, that you're cutting national insurance while raising it at the same time, which in a narrative sense doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think it's this idea from Rishi Sunak that you've got this health and social care levy to pay for the COVID repairs to the NHS and then moving it on to social care. And he was very much keen to make sure that that money still goes that and that this extra spending for the health service um, was supported and was properly funded. Yeah, I was speaking to a former Treasury minister who I think he described it very well. He said it was very messy. And that's the problem, trying to explain how you're increasing national insurance in April 
and then cutting it a bit or at least raising the thresholds in July. You know, they're going up and they're going down. What are people to make of that? It's a bit like Rishi Sunak being this low-tax chancellor who just keeps putting taxes up. It's a very messy picture. But I think in the end, having got to the point, and this, this goes back, I think, to the relationship between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. Boris Johnson wanted to spend more on the health service. Rishi Sunak said, fine, but we're going to have to pay for it by putting taxes up. He wanted to instill some fiscal discipline, not just on Boris Johnson, on the rest of the cabinet, and to show that you have to pay for things. Grudgingly, Boris Johnson accepted it. And then they, they found themselves in a situation like we're in now, where there's a huge cost of living crisis, putting up taxes in the middle of it. Frankly, it would have been more sensible just to have scrapped it altogether. But having taken all the pain... Having written a joint op-ed in one of the, I think one of the Sunday papers saying they were going to stick with it, I think they just felt they couldn't go back on it. it. Would have involved eating too much humble pie, instead of which we end up in this, frankly, slightly mind-boggling halfway house. Well, one person who's been pretty critical of the Chancellor's tax-cutting language is the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves. This is what she had to say following the spring statement. He says it's all down to the pandemic, but the truth is. The Conservatives have become the party of high taxation because they are the party of low growth. Now, I understand that the Chancellor has a portrait of Nigel Lawson above his desk. Well, today we've got an energy price crisis. Record prices at the pumps. Inflation is back. The truth is, he's not Nigel Lawson, Mr Speaker. He's Ted Heath with an Instagram account. That, of course, Chris, gives us a wonderful image of what Ted Heath's Instagram account might look like. Many pictures of um, grand pianos and sailing, I think. But obviously, Rishi Sunak was trying to burnish his tax-cutting credentials for that criticism you saw from Labour with the promise of a cut in income tax two years into the future in April 2024, very handily, just around the time we might be expecting the next general election. I can't recall a chance that announcing a tax cut two years into the future. And you can see why he's doing it, but it just all looks a bit nakedly political. What did you make of it? Oh, it's obviously political. It's obviously linked to the election. And it's actually income tax revenues are going through the roof. Even in 2024-25, the financial year where the tax cuts comes in, income tax revenues are expected to rise. And that is because we have frozen all the allowances and thresholds in income tax and, by the way, national insurance after the increase in July this year. And with high inflation, that brings in an enormous amount of revenues. So inflation is very good for the exchequer. It's going to raise revenues by about £35 billion a year, more than was expected in October. And so, of course, you could give money back. You have a stealthy tax rise by letting inflation whittle away the real levels of sort of nominal values in the tax system. And then you give it back in very headline rate cuts. And that is exactly what this chancellor does. I'm not sure these days whether people will be quite as fooled by it as, as they have in the past, because it's so naked. Everyone can see exactly what's going on. People are going to be feeling a lot worse off, not only because inflation is going to whittle away their salaries, but also because they'll feel that when inflation's at nine, if personal tax allowances aren't increased in line with that, you suddenly feel you're paying quite a lot of extra tax. It'll be written down on your pay packet. And even if the tax rate goes down, the amount you pay will go up. 
Now, beyond all that, George, there was a lot of criticism, the fact there was no extra money for universal credit. This had been, I think, had been discussed at some levels in Whitehall. But again, going back to that treasury mindset was very much wait and see. And for example, the the conservative pundit Tim Montgomery was very critical of this and said there was a massive mistake by Rishi Sunak. He's done nothing to avert misery for millions of unwage and little and low wage and said there was no joined up thinking. And I think this was highlighted by a very moving exchange on LBC the evening of the spring statement where Rishi Sunak had to deal with this caller. A significant increase in our energy bill has meant that we don't have the boiler on. The lights are always off unless absolutely necessary and when it's cold we wear jumpers and coats and sometimes you can see our breaths when we breathe. Now, despite working a full-time job, I'm having to find ways to bridge the gap. What are you going to do to address the soaring costs of energy? And if you're not doing anything, please tell me what else you suggest I can be doing to help myself. Well, Hazel, thanks. Uh, thanks for your question. And look, I, I can't imagine how difficult your job is, right? I'm, I'm, I've got two kids as well. And I, you know, have obviously my wife and other helped with us. So, you know, enormous admiration for what you're doing. And it sounds like you're working your socks off to look after them. So um, tribute to you. It, on energy bills in particular, you're right, they are going up. And we have something called the energy price cap, which... An aspect of Rishi Sunak's political persona, which has so far not been a liability for him. The fact that he is incredibly rich. He's married to the daughter of one of the richest people in, in India. He's very rich himself. He was a former Goldman Sachs analyst and hedge fund man. So in the past, this has not never been an issue because he's been handing money out hand over fist during the COVID crisis. But now we're into a different political phase. For the first time, you're starting to get that juxtaposition. You heard the gears crunching there. Rishi Sunak talking about the fact he has two kids in some way comparing his situation with a caller, and it just doesn't ring true. That's the, the shock that Rishi Sunak had to face this week, because people are really going for him for the first time. We spoke to a Conservative MP who said he'd gone from being the golden boy to the tin man almost overnight. And it was exacerbated by the fact that there was nothing in that package announced on Wednesday to help people right at the bottom of the pile, people who don't have jobs or can't work. And there are a couple or several reasons why Rishi Sunak didn't help those people. One was that he doesn't want to be chasing inflation. He doesn't want to be putting up benefits and sort of having a, having a push sort of process. There's another more cynical explanation on Conservative MP put it to me, which is that the working poor may well vote Conservative, not so much people who are not working. So I think that's another factor. The other thing is that Rishi Sunak likes to reward work and help people get into jobs and to give people better jobs when they're in work. But the problem is, if you don't have a job, then you don't get anything at all out of, out of that spring statement. And that's a glaring admission, privately, people in the Treasury admit that that is a really weak spot for the Chancellor now. Two groups of people are going to be in the news and will be put in front of the government for a lot in the months ahead. One, disabled people. They're not working because they can't, not because in any way they're lazy and they're getting absolutely nothing. And the other is, very bizarrely, pensioners. The pension's going up by 3.1%. He could so easily have just brought forward the annual increase that was anyway going to happen next year is going to be a big increase from September's inflation rate coming in in April 2023. It wouldn't have been, it could very credibly be temporary just saying everything's got a bit out of line with this sudden spike in energy prices so we're going to bring forward benefit increases. Wouldn't have had any effect on the long-term public finances, would have cost 10, 15 billion in the short term, but not a big problem. Uh, certainly not when you've just banked 50 billion 
I just found that bizarre. How much of it do you think, Chris, is down to his real, genuine worry about inflation and the risk that you just keep pushing inflation? Well, I think just on benefits, that's not what's going to do it. What will happen is if wages... You know, there is a genuine worry public that public we, sector wages. Yeah. we go from a position, and also private sector as well, that we go from a position where inflation is in, mostly driven by rising gas and oil prices to an inflation where it's really being pulled along by just everyone chasing their tail at the same time. And that's what everyone wants to avoid. But, you know, pensions and benefits, that wouldn't have done that. Finally, George, obviously Rishi Sunak was pretty popular when he was handing out billions of pounds during the coronavirus pandemic. And you can remember Conservative MPs rhapsodising about him as Mm. the kind of person they'd much rather see as Prime Minister and Tory, as someone who's competent, managerial and less chaotic than Boris Johnson. That image has really been challenged this week. And I think not just because of some of the quite testy exchanges on broadcast about this spring statement. And he's clearly very frustrated. And I knew if he was sitting here in the studio with us, he'd be saying... We've got this huge debt pile, the interest payments on the UK's debt pile, and we're 50 billion this year, 83 billion next year. And that's going to pose a huge challenge. You've got to bank that fiscal headroom. But politically, it feels as if this was a bit of a misfire, and that is going to harm Sunak's standing. And I think at the end of this week, Boris Johnson, who's obviously praised by some Conservatives for his political understanding of the country, was the one who I think pushed him into a lot of these measures in the first place. And his economic outlook might have seen it been more in chime with what the country would want at this moment. Yes, I mean, he's been dealt an incredibly difficult hand. I mean, almost unthinkably difficult compared with some of the hands that previous chancellors have been dealt. First of all, a pandemic and now a war and an inflationary spike we haven't seen for 30 or 40 years. So he's he's faced a very, very difficult position. But I think because of some unforced errors, he's made life more difficult for himself. You mentioned those testy interviews that he gave in the aftermath of the spring statement, one of which where he mentioned... He was talking about um, supermarket shopping and he said his family had different, a number of different types of bread, which was just kind of an interesting insight into the Sunak um, household. Then another thing which normally would have gone unmentioned, but the fact that he went to, to a photo shoot at a Sainsbury's petrol station and was filling up a, a Kia Rio car, which obviously wasn't his own vehicle, and the Treasury had to admit that he'd borrowed it from a supermarket employee. These things are things would normally pass unnoticed, but in the current climate, it plays into this idea, as the Liberal Democrats put it, that it's almost a kind of Marie Antoinette, so let them eat cake moment. Now, I think that's unfair to Rishi Sunak. You know, he doesn't come from a wealthy background. He wasn't born rich. But it's those sorts of things are starting to stick to him. And even before the spring statement, you could see his popularity starting to come off. He went from having sort of the sky-high sort of um, approval ratings among conservative activists to being number 11 in the charts. And his approval rating as chancellor generally has been falling. So I think, look, it's been a searing week for Rishi Sunak. But, you know, we were saying earlier, he's going to have to come back in the autumn. And I think he's going to have to do an awful lot more and an awful lot better in the autumn to restore his reputation. And Chris, we should say, obviously, there are these big unknowns and that's why he's obviously banking this money. And when you look at the projection of high inflation is going to be for such a long period of time as well, you can understand maybe why he is being cautious. But out of all the statements and the budgets and the Chancellor you've seen, how do you think this will eventually sit? I think it depends. I think you played the clip right at the start where he read out something from the OBR saying the circumstances were unusually uncertain. Now, the words unusually uncertain is the biggest cop-out that economists always do. I hate the phrase, but this is maybe the time where it is actually genuinely legitimate to say that. You know, we don't know what's going to happen next week in the war. 
We don't know whether there's going to be an oil and gas embargo, which is going to make the prices of everything, particularly gas in Europe, go up even further than they are already. We don't know if households are going to be facing bills in energy this winter that will be on a scale that's another 50% increase, sort of a £3,000 a household charge. These things are really difficult to deal with. You can understand that you might want to just say, let's wait over the summer, take stock, see how things are, and then try and have a bigger, more comprehensive package later in the year. So I can understand that. I just think that, and I, so you can exactly understand how the Treasury thinking went. I think they just they just didn't see how this would land. They just got their, the landing of the spring statement entirely wrong because people want to know now. People want, themselves want some certainty about what, what government's going to do. Christian George, thank you very much. Let's now look at the reaction to the spring statement outside of Westminster. Sunak did not announce a huge amount to help British businesses with that significant corporation tax rise still on the horizon before the next election. But for workers, the Treasury argued that 70% of the country would receive tax cuts based on what they were set to pay before Wednesday. But the spring statement has exposed one of the major issues still undermining the British economy, sluggish growth and poor productivity. Rachel Reeves highlighted this in her response to the Chancellor. The weak growth forecast we've seen today should be flashing red on the Chancellor's desk. And the Chancellor says in his statement today that the work starts today. (laughs) Is he serious? The Conservatives have been in government now for 12 years. Not not 12 hours. What has taken them so long? Well, Tony Danker, welcome to Payne's Politics. It's a delight to have you on. Tell us, what did you make of the spring statement and what has been the response from your members? Well, the response has been a bit underwhelming. I think it's clear with this spring statement, the Chancellor is has got two clear beliefs. The first is government can't solve all the problems. We need to wean people off government uh, as we relied on them during the crisis. And so what he's really done is not very much for today, a little bit more for tomorrow. The second belief is we can wait till October for the real meat and drink. And I think members, and I'm sure Francis will say this about workers, think that that might be just too much of a gamble. I think we have cost of living problems now, not for everybody, but I'm not sure that we're going to be able to hang on till October before that spreads. We've got businesses, particularly smaller ones, dealing with energy costs that have gone up fourfold. Remember, they don't have a price cap in the business market for energy, and the bills are incredible now. And the real question for me is whether or not, as business confidence starts to wane a little bit because of the Ukraine crisis, whether or not the Chancellor's package on business investment and stimulating growth, which is a good one, We really can wait 12 months before that comes into play. Or whether or not what we really needed from the Chancellor on Wednesday was a major statement of growth-oriented policy that unlocks the investment that's there and stops people hunkering down. And I just don't think he did enough on Wednesday to put us in good shape for the six months ahead. And I'm worried we can't wait another six months. Well, Francis O'Grady, it's also a real pleasure to have you with us. And I think that theme that Tony talked about, that Rishi Sunak did this spring statement, which was more than he originally wanted to do, 
but it's still not enough. And it seems unlikely he's going to get through to the full budget late this year without doing more to help various parts of the economy. What was your take on it? I sense the government is increasingly out of touch with the cost of living storm that's hitting ordinary working families up and down the country. And we needed action now, not later. Instead, the Chancellor chose not to use the headroom that he had to help working families. There was no windfall tax on energy companies to provide real help because people need grants, not loans, to deal with rocketing prices. And there was no plan to get the economy growing again and making sure that that growth is shared fairly. So instead of helping providing an extra boost on the minimum wage or making sure that public service workers weren't facing more real terms cuts or introducing fair pay agreements, which would put money in people's pockets that they could spend in local high streets. We had nothing. We had basically tax rises in order that he can claim to cut taxes in advance of the next election. And that will feel very cynical to people who are struggling with stagnating wages at best and rocketing household prices now. Now, Tony, one of the things that when you looked at the fiscal outlook from the Office for Budget Responsibility highlighted something that really strikes me as as an issue that is going to become a major issue of the next five years, which is sluggish growth in the UK economy, that obviously things have bounced back pretty quickly since the coronavirus pandemic. But once that subsides in that five-year outlook towards the end of it, you've got growth rates below 2% hovering thereabouts. And we know these projections are never the most reliable of things. But it does really feel as if unless we can unlock more growth and deal with the UK's productivity in that long tail effect, then we're going to be stuck in this situation of ever increasing demands on public services, not a strong enough tax base to support it, and generally unhappiness for many businesses and many workers. Oh, totally. You you have totally nailed it. And I've been saying it for a while now. Spending is on the rise. And of course it is when you look at some of the needs in the economy right now. Taxes are already pretty high. I'm not sure we could put them much higher, the highest in 77 years. The Chancellor said he's not going to borrow more and he begins the journey of trying to bring borrowing down. And so if all of a sudden the OBR and the Bank of England and others have have been more pessimistic than them, say that we ain't going to get the growth to pay for all the above, then we're really stuck in a situation we can't tolerate. And that's why I don't think we can wait six months to think about backing growth. Now, I do think this is a chancellor that cares about productivity. I do think this is a chancellor that cares about business investment, skills and innovation. He said it in the May's lecture. He published a document that says he's going to come back to it six to 12 months time. But there is a ton of things the government can be doing every day, every week, every month between now and then to get growth on the move in the UK. The biggest opportunity, which could come next week, is the Prime Minister's new energy strategy, which I hope goes far further than the previous ones, and actually sets out how we can start 
unlocking the queue of projects on renewable and clean energy that are ready to go, but the government has not committed to. There is private sector capital ready to be crowded in. And that would be a big boost to growth at exactly the right time in the cycle. So let's not make growth the subject of the next fiscal event. Let's have some urgency in government about keeping growth on the move. Because if you don't have tailwinds in the economy, then the headwinds will eat you up. Now, fantasize you, your view on this is about trying to improve skills and trying to make sure that wages are rising to keep pace with inflation to improve that end of productivity here. What would you like to see from the government on this view? Well, those are certainly important ways to incentivize not just productivity, but pro-worker productivity that people share in, you know, and share the benefits. But I think the government also needs to acknowledge, as the OECD and IMF, that austerity cuts for over a decade held back our growth. International institutions recognise it. I think it's important that the government doesn't go back to some form of austerity light or heavy. Also, it needs to acknowledge that our investment has been way behind other G7 countries, especially in terms of green industries and jobs. We're languishing near the bottom of the league. And it's very hard to know why businesses should have the confidence to invest if government doesn't lead by example. And then thirdly, you know, we've got stacks of evidence to show that skills and indeed worker and union engagement are really important for productivity. Not all good ideas lie in Westminster or the boardroom. The workforce has lots of good ideas too. But again, the government's been very short-sighted on skills. We've seen adult education cut by 40% over a decade. They slashed the union learning fund. You know, that is really a false economy and the government needs to get serious about investment in skills for the future. And then, Tony, I guess the thing is that obviously we've had the levelling up white paper that came out and I interviewed Andy Howday and the former chief economist of the Bank of England this week ahead of the spring statement. And he said that, you know, the cost of living crisis is one of the reasons we need to put rocket boosters under the levelling up agenda. But when you look at that and the ambition to try and deal with the long-standing regional inequalities, which I think lie behind a lot of the growth and productivity issues within the UK, you still get that sense that there's not enough devolution. It's still very centralised. I think one of the things you've been focusing on since you took over the CBI is looking at what can be done to boost particular things in the regions, be it the northeast, the northwest, or the West Midlands. In that kind of space, what would you like to see from the government? Look, I'd like to see them just go faster with things that we've been talking about for a long time but haven't done. Most of that renewable energy investment, the hydrogen and onshore wind business models, the infrastructure, the queue of projects that are lined up to go through the infrastructure pipeline in order to be funded by the infrastructure bank. We've been talking this morning, haven't we, about electric vehicle charging infrastructure. You know, Helen Thomas in your paper this morning wrote something very interesting. She said that after the financial crisis, the government formed a national economic council that met in the Cobra Room and said, right, let's grip this thing. Let's grip this thing and generate, bring all all of the government action together in one place, engage the private sector in what it's going to take, and let's make rapid decisions in the Cobra Room to manage the economic crisis. 
Well, here we are again, facing a real energy crisis, a real inflation crisis, a cost of living crisis. I would love to see the government now convene that COBRA for recovery, that COBRA for growth that allows all these things to come together and decisions to be made more quickly. And that is true of all the leveling up opportunities that the white paper tees up. It's true of all the energy opportunities that the government have been talking about for over a year, all the infrastructure opportunities. And I tell you, there is investment around in the private sector for good projects done quickly on the right things. But we need government to unlock it. And we need government not to say, let's wait and see. And I think, Francis, that thing about speed, and we talked about this with George and Chris earlier in the podcast, because the fact is Rishi Sunak has taken a wait-and-see approach with the spring statement because there is so much uncertainty in the economy on what's going to happen with inflation, the further impact of the war on Ukraine. But when you look at the scale of these challenges, particularly given the fact we've got really now two years until the next general election, when all these questions will be thrown out to the general public, it does just feel as if we're sitting on our hands slightly, where there should be more being done now on the areas Tony talked about, but also what you were saying earlier about that focus on skills and education and improving workers' individual ability to sort of help boost our our growth. And the struggle that families are facing now, you know, with those universal credit cuts, insecure work, low pay. I mean, the levelling up agenda is really important, but it's only going to mean anything if it includes levelling up work. And the quality of work, as we know, in Britain is far too low in too many places. You know, the truth is, all around the country, we've got very, very large numbers of people on low pay and on zero-hours contracts, agency contracts, as we all know too vividly. That means that decent employers are undercut by the bad. So the government has to not just talk the talk, but do something about lifting labour standards and making sure that workers have a voice. Because, of course, the CBI and the TUC together have argued for a National Economic Council uh, for us all to have seats around the table. But the government has chosen to exclude unions. It seems to me that, you know, with the pressures being faced by working people, the government has to get its act together. And it has to get serious about investment for the future and giving working people a say. Well, it's very funny you mentioned that, Francis, because I was talking with one of my FT colleagues this week about Ted Heath's NEDI, which was, of course, the National Economic Development Council in the 1970s when he tried to bring together the unions, industry bodies like the CBI and have that kind of national economic planning. And we did see a bit of that during the coronavirus pandemic. So I remember a picture of you and Tony's predecessor, Callan Fairburn, outside number 11 Downing Street, looking at the various packages. Why do you think the thinking government has changed since then? You know, that was only 18 months ago. It does feel ironic that the probably the most successful policy of this government was a furlough, that wage subsidy scheme, not perfect, but we knew that full employment and protecting jobs was the key priority. That was a proposal by the TUC. We worked in great detail with the Treasury and really pleased that the CBI supported that too. But I'm afraid that seems to have changed. It's um, you know back to business as usual. And it also seems like the government is on permanent election alerts. And 
you know, I, I think it's in danger of really just not understanding how big this cost of living crisis is. And with, you know, more shocks coming down the road in terms of the changes we need to meet our climate targets, the impact of new technologies, it's even more important that everybody's in the room. And finally, Tony, last word to you. Look, everybody is willing to help, right? Everybody from unions, civil society, businesses of all shapes and sizes. This is a shared problem. And I think if the government shows willing and reaches out to engage in a real exchange around how we tackle those problems, then everyone is up for that. I have sympathy with the Chancellor saying that the government can't solve inflation and the government can't solve the energy market. But that doesn't mean we stand still. It means we equip people to cope, we equip businesses to grow, we we create tailwinds and conditions that people can get through the next couple of years. And I think if they extend the hand of collaboration, we're willing to help because we're all in this together, as somebody once said. Well, Tony and Francis, thank you both very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please subscribe. You can find through all the usual channels you receive your podcasts to get episodes as soon as they drop every Saturday morning. We also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Persis Love and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.